You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What's up, everybody? Thank you very much for listening to yet another episode of this beautiful celebration of independent music in the form of a podcast called 100 Words or Less, which you know that already. I mean, you heard my my attempt at a radio announcer's voice at the very beginning, (laughs) but we have a rad, rad guest on this week. This is a person who has traveled in and out of my life for quite some time. We sort of work together, and uh, I've seen his band play many of times. His name is Thomas Barnett, and he's the vocalist for Strike Anywhere. Strike Anywhere brings me smiles from ear to ear. It combines so many things that I love. Melody, punk, hardcore, energetic live show, political message. Like It just ticks off so many boxes for me. And it's one of those things where... I don't find myself listening to Strike Anywhere all of the time, but when I do, I'm just like, oh, dude, I, I forgot how much I love this band. And it shouldn't be something I continually forget, but I do. They just released a new EP on Pure Noise Records, and uh, it is unbelievable. I mean, they haven't released a new record for, oh, gosh, I don't know. I can't even think of the last record that they released, but it's been quite some time. So I had to have Thomas on. He was just uh, just a great chap and a great chat. We actually, uh, I caught him. He's quarantining up in the uh, Northern California area. And it was funny because we were trying to schedule this. And it was difficult because he's living, uh, you know, in a house full of other people. And so he's like, there's not very many quiet places. So at one point, you'll hear a tree sawing in the background, <laughs> which is funny. But, you know, we, we get podcasts done however we can. So... If you listen to the show, I would love a few favors. Okay. One of them is you can email the show. Always reach out at 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Also, support the sponsors of this show. It's something that means a lot to me um, when people decide to advertise on this show. Not only is it, you know, some, some money that comes my direction, but these are all products and services that I wholeheartedly endorse. Like they, they, these clients come to me and they ask, like, hey, can we run on your show? And like, yes, I am excited to partner with you on this. So it's meaningful when you do that. And also tell people you know about this show. That's the best way, the word of mouth that gets from friend to friend or friend to peer, or maybe even you're recommending this to your parents, which would be kind of weird, but at the same time, like I'm not gonna stop it. So please do that. You know, even if it's sharing it on social media, like that's that's a that's a valuable thing to do. Please do that because uh, I don't want this show to be big, but I want the show to reach the most uh, appropriate people possible. And those are people who are highly engaged with independent music. So yeah, strike anywhere. That's all I got to say. Let's, let's dive into the conversation with Thomas. Okay. I was trying to reflect on the first time uh, I saw Strike Anywhere because uh, I, I did not see Inquisition, but um, I, I want to say that I, I saw you guys at uh, the PCH Club when that existed. In uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a long, yeah. time. it was a while ago. <laughs> um, so I, I, it probably, it, most likely, it was uh, you know off of your very first EP or your first full length. I can't recall, but um, 
you know, I, I immediately fell in love with it. Uh, just, you know, was already aware of your work with Inquisition, but, uh, you know, was really taken by the fact of what the band was trying to do, not only musically and melodically, but then also, you know, the fact that you, you know, tied uh, activist politics to it. And, you know, I, I, I viewed it because you were coming up around the same time, you know, very not too dissimilar to what Rise Against was doing, except, you know, Rise Against had clearly rose to meteoric levels that, you know, you guys didn't. <laughs> but when, you know, this may be like a super basic question, but when you started to kind of, you know, get out there and tour, because, you know, Inquisition did some stuff, but not obviously as much as Strike Anywhere did, um, you know, did you uh, enjoy the act of touring? Because I know that there's, you know, a lot wrapped up in that. Yeah, no, I did. We Inquisition did two, two and a half strong years of touring in 94, 95, maybe 96, too, where we went across to Gilman Street, um, limping along in, in various vehicles. We had a short yellow school bus um, that we outfitted as a touring vehicle. Didn't last as long as we wished it did. Um, and it kind of broke the band up because we, we were just starving like shit was real hard and you know of course whatever we were all elected to do it but we had kind of poured our lives into it and um and it was young folks 22 21 um at the end of that band and but it was we were already feeling the like i mean it was it was in the the, the beautiful era like maximum rock and roll flip side heart attack punk planet make a seven inch send it out um, get a review, call somebody on the born against list or the permutations thereafter. Right. So these were, it was all pre digital age stuff. Like you just go to Kinko's, someone in the scene is working at Kinko's of right? oh, absolutely. or a university, you know, like someplace where there's tons of copy machines and it's 24 hours and there's coffee and you can just like hang out in there and make art and make records, connect with folks who are doing the same thing. Um, I mean, Richmond had been, flowering as a punk scene, you know, all the entire time I was involved, which is from 87 when I was 15 um, onward, but definitely in, in the nineties, like it was massive avail were incredible touchstone. There was a local band called four walls falling who were, I guess, Jade trees first LP, mm-hmm. um, but also just paved the way they were a, they came out of the crucible of 88 straight edge, but they were kind of deeper and had a longer lineage than that. And I mean, it was like, putting uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X quotes like before the songs and the music was somewhere between like bad brains, Chromex, but like also more technical something. They really appealed to Europeans in the early nineties. But all that stuff was like legendary and happening like right next to me, like, you know, folks in the scene who were four or five years older than me and my cohorts in our generation. So those were like the flag posts that, you know, whatever torches that lit the way. But then what was happening nationally in punk um, in North America was, was incredible too. And was new um, as far as like fanzine culture um, and just, you know, and, and people doing lots of tours and tons of house and basement shows. And that's the world Inquisition was in. Um, so I knew I loved touring then. You know, yep. um, despite crazy deprivations and problems and, you know, police trying to fuck with you all the time. <laughs> um, and, you know, the guitarist of Inquisition, my friend Mark, he got conjunctivitis, you know, pink eye, as you do. Yep. <laughs> and no one had any money. No one had any health insurance. So we went to the desert to our bassist's aunt's place and she gave him dog medicine. 
and it cured his conjunctivitis because yeah. it was just a strong antibiotic that works across the blood barrier of species. Yep. And anyway, that's the world we were in. But we also met it with propaganda. They were on the Let's Talk More Rock tour. Um, we did some Gulf South shows with them. That's how I first connected with those folks. Um, there's a place in Houston in the Seventh Ward. Um, deeply, deeply impoverished, compressed, dense public housing projects in Houston in 95 and 6. And they had this community center um, that was almost felt like a Frankenstein's castle. Like you, you kind of got locked in at night to sleep after the shows. But it was massive place. Um, we played with Propaganda there and played a couple more times through there. And it was just like seeing these activists, this uh, Native American um, grandmother of four who was a doctor in social history and urban planning, and then a ex-Black Panther named Linwood. And those two folks had built this amazing idea, even in like um, HO scale train model form, as well as white papers and proposals, as an appeal to the federal government to give this incredibly impoverished community that barely had working plumbing. It was like, it was like the America you never see um, on purpose. <laughs> and then the punk scene rooted itself there during these two three years. Um, Island Parkway Village shows were incredible. And that was another catalyst moment for me in my bandmates and Inquisition going through there, going back, you know, calling them just to catch up when we weren't even planning a tour, like making these friends in these communities and these folks, and you know, these folks were like 30 years older than us. Like, you know, and they weren't really, they were like, you know, these punk kids are coming here and that's cool. You know, like, but it was like an under the radar event that had hundreds of hundreds of participants and organizers. And it just was, it was an amazing thing. But anyway, um, they had this proposal to get like solar powered, um, skills training, um, workshops and you know, community education reform. And it was somewhere between like, you know, Highlander folk schools and um, like the education and social justice movements of uh, South and Central America, like had all of these, these heady but palpable activist techniques in the toolbox. They were break, breaking out and applying to East Houston and, and you know, incredible police brutality, systemic racism and poverty. And punk shows, portions of the proceeds from those shows always went to help fund their, their project. And it was just beautiful and heartwarming. Anyway. Yeah. I love touring because of that. Yeah. <laughs> just to answer your question and just meet kids who are throwing shows in their parents' garages and sleeping on the floor. And like, you know, I, I guess there's another part of it too. Like I think back, whereas a lot of our peers were in our hometown and starting to go to bars, starting to drink, starting to do the thing, you know, and we obviously none of us are straight edge, you know, so we, we of course would do that when we come home too. But they were just, it was like their opportunities to do their life, to start adulthood. No matter all the punk dreams and exhortations and, and pledges that we make to each other about, you know, staying true to ourselves and like, you know, holding on to our vulnerabilities and like, you know, trying to, trying to not be the people our parents were, trying to not be the people that, you know, America is trying to be something more like, you know, and, and the way that everyone deserves to be something more. Um, touring allowed us to stay true to that, to really apply our creativity. Um, you're kind of at a constant level of like vigilance, but you're also kind of being held by the world. You can't control everything. You're just making choices. You're making phone calls with those hacked um, Radio Shack pagers that would 
the dialers. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, you know what's up with the so the dialers also made this happen, and just catching up with that kid in Lincoln, Nebraska, whose parents went out of town for the summer that you talked to six weeks ago, who said he could put you up and have a show, making sure they're still alive, and that you didn't just dream yeah. that you made that first phone call, and like, lo and behold, they are alive, and they feed you, and like, I don't know, you know, it's all that stuff is precious to us. Like, um, and Strike Anywhere's first. Years of touring were not that different, but it was five years later when that band started. So it was '99, and all of a sudden, everyone's on e- email. <laughs> like it was still primitive in '99, <laughs> yeah. right? But it was huge and it was free. And like, oh my gosh, like even that change made touring like so much more doable and like structured and reliable, you know. Um, and so, yeah, and, and also my Strike Anywhere bandmates had been in um, their, their bands of their younger years and had kind of like understood the, at least the regional landscape, you know, the mid-Atlantic, um, Philadelphia to Florida kinds of small tours. Um, and cities like Roanoke, Virginia, where my cousin, my older punk cousins lived that were, you know, what I guess would be called in industry terms, like a B market or C yep. city. We didn't even know those words existed until we heard them like in 05, yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> totally. booking agent friends are like, what are you guys saying? That's weird. But, but you know, like it's, there's all this granular uh, soulful connection that happens. And you're again, you're, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you're, you're outside of the workaday life. You're outside of the, you know, uh, starting, starting a career, figuring out your job, figuring out wh- where you are in university. If you're in college, you know, whatever kinds of shit you're doing when you're in your young twenties, um, you can kind of, you start to like, I mean, everyone bucks against that. Everyone feels that is chafing them. Um, and there's something more out there. And especially if you've, you know, if you've been involved in creative endeavors and you see this counterculture and it feels more real and more honest than anything else anyone's ever shown you about life, about who you are. So getting to stay in, in that world and that layer of contact by touring is huge. You can tell right now, I miss it. And you can tell right now, like the idea that that may not be possible for yeah. a long time is, is, is crazy. But also I got to say, we've had this privilege of being able to do it for 20 years and me for, you know, another couple of years before that, like with Inquisition, being able to look at it and the scale of it and the people that, you know, people that have saved our lives, you know, like, and the risks that we were taking either by choice or by accident, <laughs> you know, and all of those little cathartic moments of getting to that place and unloading and just like, sitting on an amp like in a dusty alleyway or, or wherever you are or, or on a rooftop in Mexico city, you know, just like seeing the world in that, in that way, I guess, you know, it, there's something about it that really collapses time and puts you in a particular spot without longing or, um, constant planning, you know, like, of course there's all of that all around it. But I guess what I mean is like, it, it makes your, it, it it makes your investment in the moment um, extremely powerful, right? And you're harnessed all of your abilities, all of your focus, all of your heart in those moments. Like, and I mean, and playing music live feels like that too, right? Like you're not even you anymore. You're just the song in that moment. And that song isn't even the song. It's just that, that time and space, you know, like nothing is ever repeatable. Nothing is ever repeated. Um, Anyway, I mean, that's the, that's kind of the deeper, yeah. whatever, emotional, no. psychological cut. But that's another reason why I like touring is, is so amazing. And it must be something ancient, like in our species, where finding new people, finding new people that feel like old friends, like all of those awesome contradictions that happen. Um, 
and it happens with scenes too. Like you'll go to a city and you'd be like, Oh shit, this is like a Richmond. If, if it went into this other, if this timeline happened or, you know, or this is like no place I've ever been, but these people have such heart and it's, it's there's such kindness here. Like, I don't know, you know, like you bring uh, the most vulnerable and, um, cathartic, I guess, part of yourself when you bring a song to a new place. You know, we were in um, Taipei uh, 12, 13, 15 years ago and thought we were just going to play, I mean, not just going to play, but like play a small club show or whatever the the version of Gilman Street <laughs> or Twisters, you know, the, that Taipei had, you know, we, um, we're, we were coming in at that level, you know, like hardcore bands, you know, like just trying to find our feet emailing with somebody we'd never met face to face here comes the tree but um but we go to taipei and freddie the guy who we'd been talking to for months before it's like oh you know this weekend is a little different and we're like oh is the show canceled because we were we were always ready for that <laughs> um he's like no in fact there's this giant festival happening and i'm sorry i didn't realize it when we were talking about you guys coming through on your way to australia it was one of those like go to japan and then go to Taipei or Seoul, South Korea on your way to Australia because you're on that side of the planet. You might as well make a plan and take a couple days. But so we, we were in Taipei and he was like, no, we're having this like human rights and justice pro-democracy anti-China music concert in this giant like soccer auditorium and place outdoors and was like this I was crumbling. It was beautiful. And so we like got there. We're like, what is happening? And we ended up playing this you know, and all these, we could only assume there were these kids from New Zealand who had settled in Taipei. They were like punk and hardcore vegan kids from New Zealand. Um, they married, um, their, their partners were, were, um, were Taiwanese and they were, you know, like med students, or, you know, journalists, whatever. Um, but they, they like appeared out of nowhere. They're like, okay, mate, we know you don't know Chinese. We're going to, we're going to help you through this. We got you. Two of you guys have the flu. Cool. Here's some medicine. Like it was amazing. <laughs> and and then so we they just stuck to us like glue. And then we played this festival. It was huge. The stage was like, you know, we're 20 feet high. And then the drum riser actually rose on some kind of hydraulic platform. So Eric couldn't even get down. And he was another 20 feet above us. It was insane. And it was amazing. And all these bands played like these dissident bands from Hong Kong that had to go to Sweden as refugees that came back for the show under the radar, like all these moments that we could barely process these uh, political prisoners who'd been released that morning came on the stage to speak. People were waving banners. There were planes going by overhead. There were political officials like in the box seats. Um, I don't think anyone even knew what kind of, what genre of music we were playing. <laughs> like, sure. It was nuts. Right. But but so that was something where we the whole time we were just kind of trying to navigate this experience with just a you know with a few insights and some really good friends and those kids from New Zealand had like never seen us before, but they listened to us and and they were like, "We're going to need our help through this. We got to we got to help <laughs> yeah. those guys out." Yeah, and it was awesome. But yeah, but it was so that's another that's another story. Like it's like the the level of diverse experiences and the level of like things that test your intelligence and your emotional field of view are, are so important, you know, and you feel like it's a more, it's, it's like a more natural way of living of like being your whole self, um, than being compressed in the work a day life and stuff. So anyway, again, it's, it's, I know it's a privilege and if we never get a chance to do it again, um, 
it's, you know, it's, I won't be bitter because we've had an incredible amount of experiences and memories and stories like that. I could torture you with for a long time, but anyway, <laughs> no. yeah, man, I, touring is really important and it informs the, the way we communicate with this whole thing. So as soon as we can play these songs live, Oh God, yeah, <laughs> me and my bandmates call each other. Now we just kind of like have these long silences of like, man, it's going to feel good to be able to play that song. And they're like, yeah, because this is the first time we've ever, as you can imagine, had a new record and not been able to even get together to rehearse and play the new songs for ourselves, much less other folks who might want to hear them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, for sure. For sure. Yeah. This was something I was going to hit on a little bit later, but the, um, you know, the connective tissue that you were talking about as far as Richmond was concerned, uh, I was always impressed, you know, that kind of regardless of, of genre of music, I mean, you know, as long as it was existing within the independent subculture, there always was this political charge with it. You know, I mean, even a veil, I mean, a veil, you know, w- rose to levels of, you know, being like one of the largest punk bands, you know, in the, uh, in the community. And they had, you know, a political undertone in the same way that, you know, uh, four walls falling was obviously a little bit more explicit about it um but you know have you ever kind of i guess looked at what was sort of in the water (laughs) in regards to richmond because it it seemed like regardless you know bands really always came from that sort of root yeah i know and i think even before that like too um like even that second generation like the america's hardcore generation um that kind of built the scene um, you know, in a lot of ways, but a lot of that stuff was waning. And by 87, when I got downtown and saw my first shows, like it kind of just seemed like a bunch of art students. So VCU was, you know, like the, at the time now it's all wildly gentrified and, and painful, you know, and a lot of the city's unrecognizable and like, but before Fred for many years, like the Bohemian quarter was centered around VCU and it was like, you know, an, an art school and not much else at, for, you know, from the sixties to the late eighties. Um, now, of course, like it's become a monster and it's all about a business school and there's crazy, like multiple campuses that have completely destroyed working class neighborhoods <laughs> um, and all of that and the art galleries and the art scenes that, you know, like, like kind of it, were just happening in the vacuum of Richmond, like a conservative Southern city with Confederate statues Um but you know, it's one of those things where like there's 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 a tiny nugget of free thinking, anarchic individuals, um, and people who believe in social justice. And so I would almost say, since I grew up there, so my first thirty years there, like um, it's the lens through which I see the world. And so it'd be hard for me to say like, other than like the other cities I've lived in are like politically liberal metropolises, right? Like Portland, Los Angeles. Um, now the East Bay. Um, and I would say it's the, <laughs> like seeing the cognitive dissonance of incredible entrenched historic dishonesty that, you know, Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy and all of the like moral horse trading that people had to go through just to like exist there and feel like it's okay. Um, punk and hardcore were specifically designed to call that out you know, and not necessarily in Richmond or that particular um, level of injustice or getting getting an entire population to lie to itself for generations, right? Like that's that's not sustainable, right? And you know, punk was sort of, you know, one of the many cool things that it does is it uses cognitive dissonance and the symbols of late capitalist consumer society, the 
amnesia that is required for flimsy concepts like national identity um, or, you know, public life to go on to just for that, that train of like nonsense and false competition and, you know, looking at historic injustices as, you know, just like, this is what power demands. This is how we, this is how we bought the peace, you know, like all that bullshit. Mm -hmm. And Richmond is a unique place for that bullshit. (laughs) Like, and if you grow up and you just have like half a brain and a quarter of a heart and you're just like itching to see what's true, like that lies all around you, and especially, you know, when I grew up in the eighties and nineties, uh, but of course it still is. Um, but I mean, I think it's just like that, that rumbling, like earthquake underneath every society um, that we're seeing, you know, writ large right now in this era of mass mobilizations and protests. But I do think that like punk is always going to be drilling that core down to get there. And that's another thing that, so, so the, the bands in Richmond that reflected the politics that, that, that talked about activism and that promoted that in the communities, they were just, that was just a natural reaction. Like that's the only way you could be is the way I see it. I've recently been posting a lot of my old band shirts on my own personal Instagram at X purpose X. But if you, this isn't to get more followers on Instagram, that would be hilarious if I was doing an ad for this. But what I am doing an ad for is Rockabilia because they are the best place for you to buy band merchandise. I personally have over, I don't know, three, 400 band shirts. It's absurd, but that just goes to show how much I trust this company in regards to their officially licensed stuff. It's all shipped to you very quickly from the Midwest, independently run company. Use this code PC100Words, okay? PC100Words gets you 15% off your order. And if you visit rockabilia.com, you will be just completely inundated by rad stuff. They have over half a million items, all officially licensed. You are getting the bands paid when you are ordering this stuff, okay? So again, rockabilia.com, use the code PC100Words. Band merch is my life. It should be yours too, okay? So go visit the site. Use the code PC100Words. Thank you. Kind of focusing on, you know, you individually as a person, you know, were you born and raised in Richmond? Yeah, I was okay. born, and yeah, and then um, me and my partner moved out of there when we turned thirty, and so Striking Anywhere was 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 fully happening as a band for I guess five or six years. Um, that my last five or six years there, and then I lived there again in eleven, um, and then passed through there as you can imagine yearly, sometimes a couple times a year to check on parents and friends and walk right. the city and yeah, yeah, um, the whole thing. Rehearse with my bandmates and you know, sure. watch their kids grow up. <laughs> like, so yeah. And it's changed a lot. You know, I've had a lot of old friends that kind of stayed a little longer than we did. Um, you know, also finally leave the city and go to some, go somewhere else. And then we, so we reflect about the, the changes that, that they kind of like saw that I didn't, you know, or I would see like a postcard version of it when I come back home, um, for that, you know, that long soulful weird walk around the city at 3 AM. Um, but that's important to have. It's important to still have that continuing relationship, especially with a hometown as rich um, with influence as that place does, right? Like, you know, and I, I can't speak to other experiences, like, um, but it, I don't know what it had been like if I'd grown up somewhere else that was a little more innocuous or, or changed more, you know, more rapidly. Like, um, but Richmond was so resistant, so entrenched and corrupt and, you know, like, you know, white noise, white supremacy was all riddled throughout the city, um, injected into the white working class populations for generations. That's the roots that I come from. Um, and 
you know, and then so like recognizing that there's a lot of things that have changed in, in that city and a lot of the things that were kind of that hidden evil are now, you know, becoming spotlight evil and, 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 you know, like finding those targets and pulling down those statues and looking at those policies. And, and it's strange because like all this, it almost took like waves of gentrification and all this other money kind of being poured into a city like that um, to, you know, I mean, eventually, eventually like the lie is going to crack and and people are going to rise up and you're going to see what's happening now. But seeing it in Richmond is incredibly poignant i must say like you know with the history with no protest tradition at all you know like and then seeing what what's happening now and like it definitely is real hopeful it, in spite of how despondent you know like a lot of the current events can be and a lot of these situations can be like it's uh because it's not just physical it's like psychic like psychological i mean people having a chance to really feel the courage to unite and to discuss openly these hypocrisies, right? And these dishonest histories. Um, it's crucial. That's how we move forward. I mean, that's how we become like not frozen in a false history. That's, I guess that's how I felt like Richmond was frozen in a false history and being involved in like the underground and arts and music and political culture that spoke against that, you know, and that, that built a life to be lived against that um, was, was the only place that was true. Everything else was like a a wax museum. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and so w- what kind of kid did you find yourself, uh, you know, growing up as, you know, I'm just going to make sweeping assumptions about you, but, um, you know, like, did you have like brothers and sisters? Um, you know, were you kind of like an outdoor kid? Were you a sports guy? Like, you know, what, what sort of, uh, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, elementary school kind of before you were really finding, you know, obviously. Who of course. You are now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I was the only child. Um, uh, grew up in a ranch house, like in, in a, you know, like lower middle class neighborhood near a swamp. Um, <laughs> had a bunch of cousins, older cousins, um, punk who were punk women in the eighties who made me mixtapes, dressed me up when I was 12 to go to the mall. Um, older cousins were my babysitters. And so I had, and I had a lot of like great influence from them. Um, and yeah, so, hmm. Yeah, I worried about this in the song of Dead FM, but like I was born with a cleft lip and palate and had to get a bunch of surgeries to eat right, talk right, um, over you know the seventies and the early eighties. Um so I had summers where I was like not a really active child. Like I was at the children's hospital in a ward healing from a bone graft or another surgery on my face. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and then a lot of people that have facial deformities and disfigurements know this story, you know, and luckily by the time I was born in, you know, seventies and eighties, plastic surgery was getting a little better. Um, and so anyway, I read a lot and I was indoors a lot. Um, and not particularly athletic, but, you know, not really at odds with athleticism. Some of my neighbors in my neighborhood um, were from Jamaica. It was kind of a diaspora of Jamaican aluminum professionals and workers after a particular election in that country nationalized their bauxite industry. <laughs> Isn't it weird the things you end up knowing because of who you play soccer with in your neighborhood? Sure, sure. But so uh, kids I grew up with had accents. There was like, you know, like barbecue pits dug in the middle of a suburban block. There was jerk spices everywhere. You know, it was a slightly different experience than I think most kids like on the outskirts of southern cities would have had in the 70s and 80s. But it was cool because there was influence 
and there's music. And a lot of Richmond's punk and hardcore scene was shepherded and hosted by the Caribbean and African-American populations in the city, the reggae clubs. I saw Fugazi's first show in Richmond at a reggae club um, called New Horizons. Like there was, there was a lot of that influence happening. Yeah. But as a child, um, definitely read a lot. I was pretty social, um, but had these, again, these long summers that took me out of the game of normalcy, um, you know, recovering from these, these surgeries. But uh, anyway, like, as my grandfather said, like I became verbose, like the <laughs> issues around me, or the issues around me having difficulty speaking um, did not emerge. Sure. As you can tell, but yeah. So I think I was encouraged to like, I don't know. Use your uh, voice. Join. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and so, and that was, that was cool. And my cousins were always really like, you know, like verbose charismatic people. And I was always pretty shy, you know, but I, I don't know. I think, I think I had a really, I had a, a decent childhood. It was cultivated. Um, my mom grew up in an orphanage uh, and my dad grew up in some poverty. So they got together and just kind of like pulled their resources. I think they were the first of their families to get degrees um, and kind of move out of um working class, uh, white poverty. And so that was, they were very austere with things as you can imagine coming from their background. Um, and I think they wanted something different for me, um, than some of the things that they endured growing up. Sure. And that was, yeah. So there was, there's like a, I had a, a thoughtful relationship with my folks and, uh, and, and then, you know, still, still played hard and, and went into the swamps and, you know, caught lightning bugs and all that pre-digital age stuff. Um, I remember getting a, a Texas Instruments computer at some point yeah. and, and starting to do like random word generators and like graphics programs that were so amazingly painful and slow. Uh, but that helped, that helped some of those summers for sure. Nice, nice. That's cool. Um, and so when, you know, I mean, like you said, you were, your, you know, babysitters were the ones that were, you know, your cousins that were kind of introducing you to the, you know, more independent minded music stuff that, you know, wasn't just exposed to you via the radio or your parents. Um, you know, so what kind of, uh, you know, spoke to you immediately about, you know, those first bands that, you know, were clearly defined by their sound, their aesthetic and, uh, you know, kind of pulled you in even further. Right. So like, one of those one of those summers where I was recovering from a surgery, um, and my cousins were kind of like raging around me, um, was eighty four. That's when Purple Rain came out. And or, or a lot of the videos for Purple I think Purple Rain came out that so I was very, very much moved by Prince before I found punk or punk found me. Sure. And the androgyny of Prince, the the punkishness of of the, particularly the aesthetic of Prince at that time and Purple Rain and First Avenue in Minneapolis and there was something about all that that spoke to me, like Prince's uh, smallness, probably, and and absolute like rapturous ability to be embedded in a song and bring people in, but also like the aesthetic, all of it. And again, like the androgyny, um, uh, you know, his, just his relationship to race, his relationship to all subcultures, kind of folded in at once. I mean, whatever, you know, like it's pretty genius. So that probably opened some door to me like i guess like um and then like new wave at the time like the police duran duran those are some of those early mixtapes that i got from cousins and then of course on, as as you did back in the 80s on the flip side of the duran duran was black flag <laughs> like so i was like oh shit and then from there it just kind of cascaded but i think black flag might have been my first my first hardcore band that i heard um and i might have even heard black flag before i heard like punk right like mm-hmm. before i heard 
the sex pistols, you know, like yeah. it was interesting. Like, um, but that really primed me so that I could go see Corrosion of Conformity like the next summer, you know, when I was 15. Um, they were from North Carolina. Yep. Might know. And so they'd come up to Richmond as, as what I now understand was probably their play test some new songs weekend city, <laughs> you know, and, and we were also that for Fugazi, you know, they'd come on down before they were, you know, maybe right after they'd recorded and been like, let's check it out. Um, let's, let's have randomly antagonistic back and forth with the crowd. <laughs> in Richmond. Yeah. Our older, our older siblings in the scene were like, Super. I mean, it was just a punchy time. You know, everyone. It, I think the the idea was that you just got to like give that band hell, even if you love them. <laughs> like some kind of like wild. So anyway, but but yeah, man. I think I think it, it was a just strange stumble into punk and hardcore, really, because it was like what mixtapes are going to happen. Um, I had a, a pen pal in Florida. This this girl, and there was a really good independent radio station there. Now Richmond had. Uh, University of Richmond station and they played some good stuff. They, um, they had like a midnight um, metal and hardcore program that I would tape relentlessly, but going down to Florida to visit my friend Heather, she, it was like this incredible radio station, you know, probably like a K rock or something that like cities had city in tons of cities had these exposed their populations. There was like fishbone and killing joke and Susie and the Banshees um, it was in Pink Lincoln's like local Florida punk bands. It was like insane. So, and I think everyone's experience in my generation is like this, Ray. Like, you kind of like stumble through this forest of various things. You like you're gonna get into some era, or some slice that you're gonna give outside outsized influence to, because there's not like a there's not like an equal platform that we have now of like all eras, all scenes. You know, um, I remember getting into X-ray specs early. And then Four Walls Falling and the youth of today, the Discord era that was like Gray Matter, Embrace, Rites of Spring, I guess Revolution Summer, like hit me pretty hard and thought it was beautiful. Um, yeah, but it just, it was just like this weird sampler of things. Some things that were really current and really like happening and other things that were in the past, but you kind of didn't know. Yeah, really because right. you had no, and I think that, you know, you hit the nail on the head where you, as a, you know, early music consumer, you have no context. You All you're doing, you're just reacting to the, uh, you know, visceral nature of whatever music you are listening to. And you're like, this is good. This is good. And you don't care if it's part of a scene or part of, you know, like, you're just like, this is good. This you is don't it. know what, it's like, you don't even know what city it came from. No. That should matter quite yet. You're just like, yeah, it, it feels like it's, it's. But it, there's something about punk and hardcore that just is so human. Like it just touches you like that. You, I don't know. Like you feel like it's more real than other music. Like, like I liked the police and I liked, you know, all these like kind of new wave bands and, and post-punk bands, but you know, and I knew they were British and that was enough for me, but like bad brains and dag nasty when I got the eye against the eye, can I say tape <laughs> from my cousin, it was like, Oh man. Okay. These guys are like, they're in my neighborhood. Like, and truly they were in DC. And then I found out of course, HR's uh, human rights reggae band that was on SST that he kind of had in parallel to the bad brains. And they had a bunch of records on SST. Um, but they were in Richmond, like that band and HR were living in Richmond when I was 15 and 16. And you then all of a sudden it was like, we'd see HR around. And like, I was, you know, listening to all the bad brains records that I could find and and then got a job at Little Caesars and my manager was the guitar player for human rights for that era of the of HR's 
band. And like, he was 30 year old guy, like amazing, like dreadlock Rasta, Richmond native. Um, and when HR would go back up to DC to, to be in bad brains, um, Tommy, I think it was Tommy. He was like, you know, I, no, no, I can't jam anymore. You and your little friends have a band in, in, in your garage. Why don't you, why don't you just let me come over and jam with you? So this like 30 year old, amazing musician, right? He was playing in HR's band, but had to kind of, you know, HR was uh, like a, a, a chaotic and intense personality. And anyway, he would just come over and hang out with us and, and kind of teach us like dub and funk and soul and hardcore. And obviously, like it was insane. And so there was those little moments that were very Richmond based. Would, wouldn't have happened without kind of the smallness of the scene and the way the population wove together over time. You're like, what job are you going to work and who's going to be next to you? And what bands are they going to be in? And how much free time does everybody have? A lot, you know, like that shit was really crucial too. And I don't discount it. Like these were just accidents of history and time, but um, it was the scale of it was really important. And anyway, so that was cool. Yeah. Um, these were all my pre inquisition musical moments. I'm, I'm giving you random shotgun blast style. No, no, no. I I appreciate painting the picture like that. Um, You know, and as you started to get consumed by, you know, the music and as you started to get older and, you know, clearly have uh, a, a, well, not when I say clearly, but like have a vision that you wanted to play in a band, um, you know, how, uh, and especially because you were probably bringing all this stuff home to your parents that had, no, con- I mean, they had a context, but they're just like, what is this weird screaming music? Like, how, how did they react to you being like, hey, I'm going to go on tour. I'm starting this band. Uh, were they generally supportive or were they kind of like, well, as long as Thomas isn't getting arrested, we're OK. Yeah, that was almost exactly what the feeling was. I had been okay. arrested like for trespassing um, at the University of Richmond, like right when Inquisition started. Um, and, you know. That was like a weird moment where I was the only 18 year old. Everyone was 17 and I went to the city jail with the Richmond city cop. And my, my bandmates who were minors got the Henrico County cop and just chilled hard until their mom came. <laughs> like, and it was, I was like overnight in a drunk tank and, but it was fine. <laughs> no problem. Sure. But still like, yeah, that was exactly my parents were like, Whoa. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I dropped out of school and there was a lot of like, I can't even describe it now, but like suburban high school that had, pretty in pink social problems like kind of a coked out slightly aristocratic uh union of rich kids and football players and then uh, like other more redneck suburbs that fed into the same high school uh there were a lot of reactions and there were eventually like riots at pep rallies and lots of suspensions and anyway i was involved in all that stuff and just let me know it was time to leave high school basically not, not a big deal but sure. but you know some problems and um uh, and yeah and I mean, i'm sure punk informed some of that too um and and it was it was kind of as late 80s as you'd imagine in some ways but uh but yeah i they were pretty happy that i was doing something i think i mean i was also working like uh let's see i was a gardener at um kind of like in a state um a county away on the river um for many of those years they just did a lot of jobs like odd jobs industrial work warehouses um between tours and but i think my parents saw that i was building towards something that i had like a like a passionate focus on art and music and i think that stuff was like they thought it would save me (laughs) 
from other things that they were powerless to control, you know, like, like me not going directly to college. I did take night classes. I actually would save up and take a semester of night classes um, during this whole time because VCU had these professors that were really interesting. They had some ex-Black Panthers uh, teaching civil rights movement, African history, African-American studies. I know I needed that because I didn't get into high school. And they had a rabbi teaching about the Holocaust and about, you know, Jewish Europe, um, philosophy, uh, all that stuff. So I took all those classes and a few more. Uh, the James River Greens Party um, chairman taught about basically Marxism. <laughs> he taught about like wealth inequality, um, the structure of our capitalist societies, you know, things I needed to understand. So I had that. I did some night classes and, and had like a what you would call probably like an uh, like a self-administered reading course that I would just take up. Um, and of course, you know, once we got on tour, Inquisition got on tour, there was AK Press everywhere setting up tables. And then we started carrying some books and it was just books, books, books. It was like amazing, you know, like, uh, and I thought like all that component of popular hardcore was really important because we started to follow bands that like, um, like Sea and Red and Man Lifting Banner from Holland. Um, I mean, even Dead Kennedys have some obtuse shit, but you want to, you want to follow up on these, these tiny little, you know, glowing embers of some fire that you want to find where that fire is. Um, you know, and that's, that's all the traditions of hardcore have that they nestle these lyrics are just laid in there with all the catharsis and, you know, supportive commentary about the crew and the scene. You also get these other ideas shining right underneath it. So I was, I was on that path. Like everyone gets on, you know, you're like in your early twenties and you're like, I'm still punk. What the fuck? (laughs) Like, you know, this is crazy. And like, you, you start to go on these other courses of self-study would be, you know, a way to describe it. So yeah, that was, there was a lot going on. I think my parents saw that too. Um, I could start getting into discussions with them about topics and they could, they could see that my mind wasn't turning into mush. I guess right. they're happy about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They said they saw you were passionate about something. Cause I, I think that's the, you know, most difficult thing that most parents go through is just like watching their, you know, kid become, you know, listless and not passionate about anything. And then, you know, yeah, just be, yeah. Th- then you just feel like, well, what is What are they even doing? Like I, I got my whole job as a parent is trying to get them introduced to stuff and then, you know, get, find a spark inside of them. But you know, when you're able to do that on your own, it's like, Oh, that's interesting. So, um, yeah. And like a productive way to sustain that passion. And, and there's a lot of forces that will pull you off of it, you know, including just not knowing what you're going to do with it, you know, not having a place to put those feelings, um, those intellectual uh, pursuits, um, those things that make you feel really whole and really engaged in the world. Like, especially when you're between 15 and 25, when your brain is just like this, you know, fire of hormones and stuff. And you're like, cognitive abilities are, are reduced because of the evolutionary prerogative. Um, it's incredibly good to find, to find that place where you can, you can help yourself. You can move forward. It helps you, helps you connect with other people too. Um, that was another great part about touring and like recognizing that, you know, a new Spitboy record would come out or the Burn 7-inch came out and like everybody in all these cities you've never been to was changed in the same way you were by that record. Like in their lives of how different their lives were, you could never know, right? You know, like, but that that moment, like those records are just like, Oh, I remember that was playing in the background. Cool. I and mean, that's how pop culture is. How music is for people most of the time, like this time and place. Oh yeah. Cool. We all rocked out to that jam. 
Um, but with hardcore and punk, it's different. It can be. It usually is. Like that record comes out and it, it hits much harder. It helps you. It's like a friend in the darkness. It helps you get back in touch with these emotions that you had kind of, because if you don't reflect and face your emotions, right? Your darkness, that, that need for catharsis, it'll hurt you, right? It'll come back and yeah. hurt you. And like, so this is a big part of hardcore where like you can, it's a place where you can go to find the courage to stare that part of you down, to become friends with it and to utilize it for, for something positive instead of to slowly kill you across decades of your life. So that's another huge thing. And all these people have that in common, you know, like getting a hold of that record, like having that experience. It's a platform for connection and for doing something healthy with the raft of potentially unhealthy emotions that people do relating to trauma, confusion, powerlessness, all that. So yeah, that was another thing that I thought was really important. I think my parents saw that I wasn't going crazy and I wasn't becoming, you know, just like a punch the clock, drown myself in beer, come home, get somebody pregnant. You know, like there weren't a lot of, Right. There weren't a lot of options around me. Like that was stuff they were afraid of, you know, more like not necessarily what I just said about those features of life of young adult life, but more like if I was, if that's, if there was more that I wanted to do, if there was something different alongside that and not having, not giving yourself a space to do that is really important. I guess my, my dad always called it stare at the wall time. You need some stare at the wall time. And I can't even imagine now as a parent how how much harder it is to get your, your child to have some stare at the wall time. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely, uh, yeah, it's a whole new ballgame. Um, you know, kind of reflecting on your experience with uh, Strike Anywhere in regards to the fact that, um, you know, you like you said, you, uh, you know, you worked hard with Inquisition and then you guys were able to take the collective experience that you had and, you know, maybe not make as many of the errors that you did with Inquisition or your earlier bands. Um, but, you know, there was a collision of the idea that you guys were, putting out records and you are part of a music industry uh, that, you know, sometimes is at odds with the idea of a lot of stuff that you guys were, um, you know, uh, raising the banner for, Um, you know, how did you interact with, you know, the, the idea of like the business of music? Uh, Was it one of those things that, you know, you proceeded with caution because you clearly had ideas on the way that the band should be structured or was it one of those things that uh, you yourself tried to disconnect uh, from it, you know, how, how did you kind of handle that? I'm sorry. Do you mean in the, in the early, no, early it, days of strike anywhere or just in general, just, just kind of in general, because, you know, I mean, you guys worked with a lot of different record labels and I'm sure that there were, uh, you know, interesting moments in which, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, larger labels were like, Hey, let's work with strike anywhere or whatever, you know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a few moments that just show how like ornery we were like, I mean, there was some moment where, I don't know. We were in Los Angeles and finally there've been a lot of emails and phone calls from a particular music lawyer. Um, and that could, you know, if, I guess if we had worked with, um, they would get us on labels, different labels and with producers, different producers. Um, and we finally like, God damn it, we're here. Let's just chill this person out. Go, whatever. Let's go sit down and see them. Different folks in the band were, uh, you know, a little less goddamn it, and a little more kind of like more open to it. But, but nobody, nobody was not skeptical. I'll say that. Sure. Um, but we were just like, fuck it, let's do it. We'll get, maybe we'll get some pizza, some free food out of this. You know, like how you're on tour and you're like, 
let's let's make this afternoon count <laughs> um, so we can go to the chain reaction and have some calories to burn, right? And uh, and so we went and met with this lawyer. And within like 10 minutes, like, I mean, he, this person was fine. Um, you know, they were doing their job. They were in a world that we that, that was exactly what we thought it was going to be. And, you know, um, it, you know, but they were probably more friendly and a little more dialed in than we thought, but still just wasn't going to be anywhere near where we were going to be. And I think most of us were like, okay, we got to go. Like we felt this almost visceral, like feeling about being <laughs> this in that, is, this is awesome. being around that. Shit. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, and it was, it wasn't personal. Like, I mean, this, this person doesn't know, what what we care about or like why we're doing this and what that means and so i think we were mature enough as people to know that then like this person wasn't the devil they weren't trying to hurt us you know but as far as like what it means for the culture for it to be you know uh (laughs) eviscerated into standard corporate consumer life um we we all had feelings about that we still do um and yeah like I, but luckily, the labels we've worked with, you know, strong, independent, beautiful labels with vision and experience and love in our community. Like, uh, we we made the right choices. Like, you know, I mean, for us, and hopefully they felt that way too. Um, and I love it. You know, it's like being able to be. You have to look at being on a label as like it's another bandmate or it's a producer. It's like someone for that season who, you know, is guiding and shaping that part of your life as a band. Um, and we are pretty, like, we keep it pretty close. With them. There's enough cooks in our kitchen, just the five of us, right, that we don't really need that much influence. Um, so I think some labels are used to maybe having a vision or a sound. And this is just within punk. Like, these are, these are people whose motivations and ethics are, are flawless and what we believe in. But there's still the sense of, like, some labels are more just, like, hands-off, you do what you do, Um you know, we'll give you what we can and see what fits and see what doesn't. And then some other labels, they're just, it's a bigger juggernaut of like sound and vision. And, you know, that's cool too. Like, that's a beautiful thing. And I think really helpful for some bands. Um, wasn't necessarily for us because again, we're kind of ornery and stubborn and there's enough cooks in the kitchen. Right. right. <laughs> in the strike kitchen. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like again, so Jade Tree, the first record that ever moved me that pulled me into this community that I still, it's a touchstone for everything I'm even writing like right now for while falling. And they were the culture shock was J tree's first release. And it was like so important. And of course we had to be on J tree. God damn. You know, like that, right. Was that was no choice. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then during a lot of the tours for J tree, we like hung out with and met all these fine folks, um, fat records bands and fat was doing the rock against Bush stuff. And it was a big tent period for fat, like sick of it all was on fat available you know what i mean like that stuff is how we were relating to our experience on that label and uh you know and so and that was that was great it was like really amazing folks and we met our lifelong friends and dead to me because they were workers at the label you know um actually brian archer was a photographer and designer for fat for many years um he took photographs of the inquisition back at gilman street in 95 nice and we had this contact sheet of us you know and, and from that and so that's how i knew him it was cool meeting these people again and then working with them again and just seeing that, that continuity of relationship. Um, yeah. And, and bridge nine, like it was incredible to be a part of that label and like just the poetry and the heart that so many of the bands on that label have, um, moved us. And yeah, yeah, I guess that's kind of how it feels. It's like, we're just, 
we're getting we're, we're on this journey with the label for the four or five years that we're on that we're with them um and it feels right and i guess you know the, the thing for us too is that like maybe especially recently with nightmares of the west we've been like we don't you know if it's not, if it doesn't feel right we don't need to do this like i mean right. that's kind of a lie we need to we have to but like you know we're not we could self-release we could just have some songs and play them live and have little recordings we reference we don't have to make a record you know we had all these kinds of moments where there wasn't any cycle there wasn't any inertia or momentum it was just you know what are we doing what feels right yeah, oh, um, no, that makes, and that punk that makes, labels give you that opportunity to say, "What are we doing? What feels right? Whatever you know." So I think it's it's an embarrassment of riches. Again, we've had a privilege to work with the labels that we have, and you know, I hope they feel the same way. Sure, sure. Um, last two things I want to hit on were the uh, notion of you know when uh, you start to transition uh, out of a regular touring cycle and kind of that you know stasis that you were speaking about earlier of kind of you know up, uh, unplugging from normal society, quote unquote. Um, and then, you know, when touring dies down, figuring out like what, you know, the rest of your life looks like, um, you know, was that, uh, a difficult transition for you to be kind of like, okay, now that touring is not, you know, at, you know, I don't need to spend the next 250 days on the road. Like now I'm able to put more roots down and do that sort of stuff. Um, was that a difficult transition for you or was it one of those things that's just like, well, you know, now this is a, a way that I'm going to apply myself here now. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone wants it to be the latter. Um, but getting to that is, is difficult. Um, I think, you know, and, and I think lots of folks have like parallel careers that they cultivate while being an active hardcore and punk bands. Um, and they had no problem doing that. Um, but none of us really did, you know, we were all kind of the same sort of punk person, <laughs> like, you know, like, Oh, uh, I dropped out of high school. So my younger bandmates in trucking were dropped out of college, <laughs> like, you know, to, to do this, to let it eat their lives. And so we had some of the same issues. Um, I mean, Matt got his degree, which is good. Um, and Mark finally got his and anyway, but yeah, but every time, you know, we would always take a break, like a six month to a year break between the edges of the touring cycles also to like recover and, you know, all that, but right, you know, like be in a place, not just right while we're on the road. There's something disingenuous about, about that, right? Like if you're not in a community, why are you writing songs about this community? <laughs> like you're just living in a box truck, having these, these times, you know, these, and, and you can definitely write about like police searching you. And like, you have to have some like experiences that do resonate with songs while you're touring, but it's important to stop touring for a bit. And, but so this last time, it was kind of predicated on me moving back to Richmond to take care of my dad, as I mentioned. And then, but we still did like tons of weekends, played a bunch of shows, like did Europe. Um, we never really stopped, but we just made things more curated is the way I would describe it. Um, so we just do, you know, like really look at each show and be like, okay, cool. And with that caveat that if this is the last one or the last run, is this what we want it to be? You know, like, and, and that has made it, that's been a very good philosophy to take as we're a 21 year old punk band. Um, and that also means that like, you're grateful for every experience. You never run the risk of getting numb to uh, like, there's this inertia of playing shows and there's no end to it. And, <laughs> you know, like um, there's, there's, so anyway, I think that that's important. Um, I think <laughs> 
you know, most of us fell into you know, different roles in our lives. Like some of my bandmates have children, like young kids now, which is awesome. And, and, you know, but we're all trying to, especially now that we don't know when we're going to play shows again or what the, the things that are happening in the world, like the fragile biology of our species is becoming uncovered. Um, but I think, I think finding a place where you can put your mind and these feelings, right? Like these, like the, the need to share with a community, the need to, to take care of yourself and each other um, and to fight for what you believe is important. Like, I think that is, that's a place where we all end up going. Um, but it does take some time to get back there, you know? And uh, like, I worked in warehouses and grocery stores and stuff for like a long time. And now I'm kind of like a social work paralegal for a labor law firm. And I'm talking to people about industrial poisoning and being hurt on the job and things like that. And like trying to organize people's claims into cases that can change industries. Um, and that's been really, really moving and important thing to do with my brain um, during this time. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's some aspects of it that are not dissimilar um, from the culture work in the punk world. Um, you know, and other bandmates of mine, are, you know, like going into medical fields or, you know, music. Like there's, there's all those options that are still there for everybody. But, but yeah, I do think that having all this experience like in this, this, this framework of global counterculture um it's not this isolated like niche experience like it, it helps you with anything that you're going to do with any other interactions um trying to apply the the physics of a moral reality to a corrupt system um and we're all kind of trying to do that like in everyday life with conversations you have with loved ones and friends and strangers through masks now right. but like that's 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 kind of what we're all trying to get to you know um but you mean trying to scrape together a living and get shifts at your friend's bar or you know whatever whatever passes for that like the same life we had between tours became the foundation of the life that we built uh, in this time of no touring <laughs> um and uh and a lot of that has to do with just like the kindness of our friends and the networks that we contribute to, you know? And, and so it's good. Our band never got to the point where we were just like isolated, you know, from our hometowns and coming from a tour and like, don't know where anyone's at. Don't even know who we are. Like, luckily that never happened. We would always bring our friends on tours with us. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's just, there's, there's all these like examples of, and also just like, like one of my bandmates, um, before the pandemic, I traveled a lot. He was, uh, you know, the production and technical assistant for another band, a larger band. And he would go and catch up with all of the different folks that we knew from Strike Anywhere Tours in cities around the world, you know. And it was just really, really nice and gratifying to, you know, get texts and pictures back from seeing all these people that we hadn't had a chance to catch up with in a couple of years. And so, I mean, I, you end up having this kind of like this extended family of folks even if a person you know took us in after let's say we were in immigration prison in japan our first attempt at getting into that country we had the wrong kind of work visas and we had a very fastidious and bureaucratic security guards um at the airport since then getting getting into japan has not been a problem in any kind of way but this time we uh were taken into this like this door opened in the hallway that we hadn't seen before and we were taken in prison for like three days uh but it was like a commandeered old kind of dingy hotel that was on the narita airport 
tarmac somewhere and had electronic locks on the doors, but a working toilet, you know, and then he gave us a meal and then said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and like, why are you still here? And we're like, we don't know. And then we went to Australia early, kicked out of Japan, got a chance to go to Australia to then meet the tour that was meant to happen 11 days later. But we had this time like in, you know, staying with new friends that were the promoters of the various little regional shows we were going to play soon early. And they knew what had happened to us because of the one group email I had a chance to send before we walked away. And this is 2003. But like, so those folks, right, like saved our lives like 17 years ago or whatever. Like we, there's, I don't know how to describe this, but there's this like tenderness of community that like kind of like, it's like a, it's, it's beyond like some, someone you see every day. Like it's something where they're still a part of you because they helped make the next step possible. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I, the, the idea that, um, you know, there are people who you met 10 years ago that you could see, you know, tomorrow and feel the connective tissue, even though you haven't seen them for 10 years. It's like, there's something that is so, uh, inextricably linked to the, uh, the music community that, uh, you, you can sit there and talk to a person for 40 minutes about why it's important. And they'll still just look at you being like, I don't get that. <laughs> you know, it's so, it, it's only yeah, until you've you know, experienced it, it. It's like there's something where it's kind of like unraveled all the defenses and the, 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 the isolation and the tribalism of everyday life. And you've already, it's almost like you've already got this, like this relationship, this menu of honesties, this menu of shared emotional truth and shared political and moral imperatives. So once you've got that, then it's almost like the air is really cleared. There's parts that you don't have to get to, you, you, you know, you can get to know someone's particular contours and their life experiences, but you already have so much you agree on and so much that brought you to that moment before you knew each other that, I don't know, it does some of that work, right? And it, it, it breaks down prejudices, breaks down shyness even. Like I was an incredibly shy person, you know, and um, this whole counterculture that I've been in for 30 years, <laughs> 33, um, has has helped me like overcome the you know, fears of talking to people and of meeting new people. And it's been incredibly important and moving. I think I'm not the only one too. I think there's a lot of us who would have been in a completely different place without this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There, <laughs> that's why this podcast exists among many of the other pieces of art that get put out on a weekly and daily basis. But yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, the last thing, and this is a, 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 I guess on a less serious note, but you have been a proponent of dreadlocks for so many years and you have, uh, you know, ridden hard for it. And, uh, you know, I, I admire that because, you know, clearly that takes a, uh, you know, definitive, uh, step to be like, okay, yes, I'm going to be, uh, you know, doing this. And, uh, you know, I mean, how long have you, I, I know it's silly to mention it, but like, you know, you've, you've done it for so long. Like, when did you... Um, I guess first do it. And was it one of those things that people were just like, who, who is this guy? Why, why is he, why is he wearing his hair like that? It's a good question. This is definitely, I think, I don't know how to describe this other than using words that grandfathered in. Um, but the context of me getting dreadlocks is straight up embedded in, in Richmond punk in the late eighties, um, influenced, um, having bands with black and white members, African-American and Caribbean folks in the scene with leadership roles, um, the band I mentioned to you, my pre-inquisition band, um, you know, like it was reggae and dub and going to reggae clubs, seeing all these, this 
this beautiful like fusion but for, for us it was like the way it was always supposed to be you know like the way that punk and hardcore looked was black and white kids in richmond saying fuck you to the establishment saying fuck you to nazi skinheads like you know this was a hairstyle i mean so i wasn't the only like caucasian punk with dreadlocks at the time there was a lot of the guys in charge of conformity had them like there's a whole world of of that and and it was political it was like a, it was like a stand against like white normativism it was it was a part of like this uh, unity culture, this anti-racist culture, made me a target, whatever, but Nazi skin has, but also, you know, having a blue mohawk would make you a target by rednecks too. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the only punk hairstyle that was like a definitive step off of the path, like a risk you were taking, saying goodbye to like the, like a lot of hateful traditions and conformity. And so that's, I got my dreadlocks on the night the Berlin Wall fell nice. in November, 1989. <laughs> Um, and that was on purpose and I've had them ever since and it's probably going to keep having them. Um, you know, and there's a lot of sensitivities about it and I get it. You know, I understand like my view of a cult- cultural appropriation is taking something without context, without roots, without respect, um, and using that as a weapon against a culture that has less power. Um, and not one second in my life have I had dreadlocks in that way. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I have black family members and cousins and, you know, there's, there's been a lot of respect. There's been discussions. There's been, you know, a sense of, you know, if you're not contributing to helping communities of color, right? Like you you definitely probably shouldn't wear dreadlocks. Like this is not like a hippie festival, (laughs) like dreadlocks. Totally. This is something else, you know, and it's also, you know, it's, it's, it signifies that my commitment to this is strong, is locked, you know, and that, that was the way it was, you know, my black friends growing up, they were like, you know, this is, this is why we wear locks. This is what it means. You should wear these locks, you know, like I, I, at the time, and we were all just stumbling through the forest of like what to do with being third generation punk and hardcore um, in a town like Richmond and, you know, where you go with this rebellion and like how, how deep, I mean, what is this? Is this a fashion is this something else? Are we taking risks? Are we standing up for our brothers and sisters? Like, those are the questions we were all asking, you know. And but yeah, that's it, no, that's, I, why I, I, that, that's the story. No, no, for sure. I mean, and I always knew it was connected to that, but it, you know, it's one of those things that, especially when people make sweeping assumptions uh, of like, you know, oh, so you must be really into new metal, you know. I mean, clearly, no one's saying that about you, but you know, like when there is that appropriation that is not connected, like you said, to the actual origin of these things or the you know protest uh, of why people you know wore those to be, wore that style to begin with, then yeah, you know, you're losing the forest from the trees and sometimes people yeah they just look at it as as an aesthetic choice more than anything else yeah no i mean every aesthetic choice that happened back then was there was a there was an existential risk and there was a statement that was also a risk um i guess that's that's another thing about punk that's changed but there was a sense that like you know i mean even profane existence in the nine ninety one started the making punk a threat again statement you know because they felt that things had gotten watered down that like we weren't taking risks anymore like did, i guess it's the difference between subculture and counterculture another way to put it but yeah as far as i mean looking at his systemic racism and race and growing up in richmond like and having black and white members in my family and seeing seeing what punk and hardcore you know like the truths that this you know the, the creativity of it the risk of it, the emotional poignancy and honesty of it, like it all points in this direction, you know, like I'm not saying that other people 
who just want to like rock out and smash beer cans against their heads are wrong. Cause there's, there's room for that too, <laughs> you know, but like, but I do think that like, as far as like how I wanted to apply myself to this movement, how I could be useful in a small way, like this was it. Um, and, and that's, you know, it, it was all, it also has brought me such, such joy. Like there's been such a connection like with folks, you know, like, um, and, and it was through, Okay, so another part of this too is like the choices of like how you carry yourself in the world. Like, there's you know, it's there's no anonymity, right? And even before the digital age, like the way that someone looked and carried themselves, like you're either giving power to one thing or another. You know, it's like there's there's different. You you can assert yourself into the conversation, uh, the public image, to use the name of Johnny Rotten's post Sex Pistols band. Yep. Um, you you know and there's a spectacle right there's there's this whole reality of of the projection of reality that we live in um and symbols and images so this was a this was presented to me as a, as an image that would go against the grain of of white supremacy of conformity of ignorance and you know and 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 take in taking a risk of for unity and like a, a part of the functionality of your beliefs um you know and in, in a larger way that's why you know punk and hardcore kids like you know, again, it's not just a parallel fashion. It's using like the the symbology of everyday life. Um, it's being honest about it. It's being honest about who we are and what we stand for. Um, so yeah, I guess that's that's a part of that's a part of believing believing in it, like in, in seeing that like you know, as we get older there's still a necessity um to be visual in the world, right? You know, and since I don't use social media very much, like it's you know, and, and, and some of this is like analog based discussions of physical reality. It's also super weird now because our physical reality is is problematic, right? Like like being among people is, is difficult. Although masking up and walking in protest seems fine. No one I know got sick from that. But definitely going to like, you know, Golden Corral yeah, <laughs> like yeah. eating at the buffet yep. is not it's really never something I would advise, but especially now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I'm sorry, I'm just I'm just throwing a bunch of stuff at you. But yes, it's 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 interesting too. Like, cause as you get older and drive us get some silver and gray, old heads like will come up to you and be like, "Hey, man, what's going on?" Like, there's a sense of um, I don't know. You just wear your years in a, in a particular way. Um, I'm not saying I have any particular wisdom, you know, but I know that like wisdom exists <laughs> and it's important to have it and share it and hold on to it and also be critical of yourself. You know, look at the ways that you are failing your beliefs. Um, and it's also important to like find time, like I said, to contemplate outside of identity, like what, what you can mean to the world and what the world itself might mean. Um, but yeah, that's just like the more of the philosophical stage of all of this, but it's all through my experiences in punk that, I've had the wherewithal to think about it, write about it, um, share it with people, be really affected and listen hard and be changed by conversations um, with strangers and friends. And I think that's one of the enduring legacies of this movement, of this art and music culture is that it keeps us open. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, Thomas, I, I know that we could probably go on for another uh, seven hours, but uh, you know, we'll we'll probably have to do that aside individually. So, <laughs> but thank thanks, you. Ray. I'm I'm, wait, yeah. I'm excited about the edit. On it's gonna be a hard edit for you. I'm sorry, was so much. But thank no. you for your question. No, no, no. Take up too much of your Sunday. That was Thomas. Thank you very much for hooking us up. I actually 
have to thank Brian McTiernan for uh, putting us together because <clears throat> I had Brian McTiernan on a previous episode of the show. And then afterwards I was like, wait a minute, he just recorded the new strike anywhere. And I didn't have a way to reach out to Thomas. So connected us on text and boom, boom, boom. There we go. So thank you very much for friends of friends being able to recommend people to come on the show. Always, always love that. Next week is a very special guest for me, Daniel Parsons, Danielle Parsons. I just realized that I said Daniel Parsons, but no, Danielle Parsons. She is one of my favorite photographers around right now in regards to just just in general, taking pictures of stuff. I mean, she takes a ton of live music photos, obviously, when we were attending concerts, but all the stuff that she shares, uh, I'm just always impressed with and this is going to sound like I'm trying to, you know, know what I'm talking about in regards to photography. I got a little experience. I was a yearbook uh, photographer for a while, a, a aspiring live music photographer. I uh, just the composition and the way that she frames subjects. It's just it's really really exciting. So I had to have her on the show because uh, you know she's a, a punk hardcore kid. So I had to have that. That's what we have next week. And until then, please be safe, everybody. <laughs>